It's time for security. Now Steve Gibson is here. We'll review the latest security news and then get down to work with eight questions from our audience. Steve's questions, uh, Steve's answers, your questions coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 480, recorded November 4th, 2014. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 200. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite. Whether you have one computer at home or several at your small business, Carbonite backs up your files to the cloud automatically and continually. Plus, access your files anytime, anywhere with a free app. Start your free trial at Carbonite.com. No credit card required, but do use the offer code SECURITY now to get two bonus months with purchase. And by Citrix ShareFile. Enhance your workflow. Set files of almost any size easily and securely with Citrix ShareFile. Try ShareFile today for a 30-day free trial. Go to ShareFile.com, click the microphone, and enter security now. And by GoToAssist. Citrix GoToAssist offers a secure, cloud-based solution for IT and customer support professionals to provide live and unattended remote support to their employees and customers working from any computer or mobile device anywhere. For a 30-day free trial, visit GoToAssist.com. It's time for Security Now, the show where we talk about security now. Yeah. 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 That's Steve Gibson there, that uh, that guy there. It's, uh, that's the, uh, the guy in charge there at his show. Uh, he is at GRC.com, Gibson Research Corporation.com. He's created, which sounds like a big, you know, giant conglomerate. Conglomerate, yeah. It's really just Steve, a few other yeah. people. Yeah. Creates the world's best hard drive maintenance recovery utility, however. You might know it as... Spin right. Spin right. Spin right. Lots of free stuff there. And and every week for the last almost 10 years now, uh, we have been getting together on, uh, uh, you know, various days, Tuesdays, these, these days, to talk about uh, security. Yeah. And, um, you know, we did a Q&A last week, but we've been skipping Q&As because there's just been so many catastrophes in the security world. And so I thought, eh, let, let's you know, pull some more questions. Also, there was a bunch of news I wanted to talk about and, and having a, like a heavy news podcast sort of squeezes out time from getting into any serious propeller head stuff. And I just thought, yeah, let's do another Q and a. So I love the Q and a, and I know our audience does. So that's fine. Yeah. And and I like it because it gives our listeners a chance to have their voices heard. Uh, There was the, like the guy whose question we took last week about random Mac addresses. We misunderstood Oh. What he meant, and oh. so it's, it's you know sort of a chance to 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 come back and fix that. But um, I, so I wanted to talk to you about a couple of things. First of all, I I have to say, I just love your banter with Sarah. Sarah, <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's you. You're so comfortable with each other. We've known each it's other just, for even longer than I've known you. It really is special. Yeah. It is just you know she is at the top of her game. She is quick and sharp and you know easy on the eyes 
And it was actually it was it was the one before last where you know you were doing the Christmas music and but just just crazy stuff and even and even yesterday I just you know I really look forward to iPad today for like the pre-show stuff and in fact it's interesting because they later on I guess a couple of days ago you capturing the whole stream because it was the pre-show stuff. Uh, with you and Sarah, that was just—it was wonderful. Now, was that so, wasn't on a podcast? That was you were watching live, or you were watching? I was a watching rerun. live, but no, but you, but someone reran. Oh yeah, that. we put that in reruns. We try to put that in reruns. Oh, and it's, it's just <laughs> wonderful. Oh, so, Steve, thank you. I just I appreciate it's, it. It just really shows you know how comfortable you guys are with each other. It's like it's a you're you are different. In a in a way, because you're just so well. She's so cute. I'm kind of giddy. She is, and <laughs> you're super com- you're super comfortable together. Anyway, it's just it's a great side. So I've always had such know, a crush on Sarah. I'm just mad and for I was, her. And well, so I guess that shows. I mean, she's right? she's got it going yeah, on. We're, we're but, such good friends, and we've known each other for so long. And you know what? We never ruined our relationship by being in a relationship. So I think mm-hmm. that was a good thing too. Uh, yeah. And yeah, at this point now, it's a very easy friendship. So thank you. I appreciate that because. Gosh knows, I love doing that show with her. I really well, do. It's, it's so just, much fun. It's a it's a romp, and yeah. I it's the, the, romp. it's sadly there a madcap no romp. <laughs> sadly, there's no link that I know of where anyone could listen to that pre-show banter from week before last. It just popped onto your feed yeah. again, and I was yeah. so glad to see it because, frankly, once you started, it was like sort of more okay, down to business now, and it was it's that pre-show stuff that you know, and you and I often have that, and which is why I, as I said that this time, I was biting my tongue about a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about to make sure it got into the podcast <laughs> rather than you know just stuff we were rambling on about beforehand. I'm a little torn because one of the things. Uh... This all has – this is a complicated story and I want to waste your time. But it has to do with the evolution of Twit because, as you know, it was originally just audio podcasts. And it, and all you could ever listen to was the produced final product because we didn't – Right. But then when once we started putting up cameras – and it originally was just simple spy cams um, – you could watch more than just the show. You can watch us produce the show. And I think that's really what Twit Live, the live version, really always is and has been is – you're not – we're not – and I think there's sometimes people don't understand this. It's not like – we're not trying to do a TV station that you – that you know, show, 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 show. You're watching us produce programs for later download. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also feel like the live thing is good and we want people to watch live if we can get them to, even though we have yet to figure out a good way to count live viewers for advertising purposes. So from yeah. a financial point of view, it's a kooky thing. But I just think it's important because it's the I easiest think, way to watch. Yes, the, the the stream has so much extra stuff. Right. So, you know, that's we're, record, we're recording now. Everybody is hearing this. Yeah. So for what it's worth, you know, and I just I, when I'm coding and I'm not doing like I'm not writing because I can't have you know as I've talked about the for me the this distinction between a, a linguistic process and a non linguistic process I'll just turn on to see what's going on and I get all this extra stuff from twit you know live which is not in the podcasts where and this a lot of it's just really worthwhile so thank you I mean that's kind yeah, of the design I, I don't know why. 
But I just feel like live is exciting and interesting and more fun. And so we, we encourage people to watch live. And, of course, well, live is the only way you can interact with the shows, right? If you're not watching live, it's you, you can't exactly interact right. with us. Right. And and I just think it's organic. That I mean, that's I mean, it's you, it's reality, it's what's going on there. And while you do have, you know, regimented scheduled things cuz you I mean cuz you have to have that or you know everyone would just sit around kind you know playing with, their, playing with their spaghetti all day. <laughs> well, there's this concept called Leo time. <laughs> yeah, I just it, it's just I, I, I just think it's great. And for so I, I would encourage people if there's a, if they have the opportunity to just watch the feed right. sometimes. Yeah. If you know, get sort Thank of you. consider that there's more than these, you know, snipped out, edited, tuned, produced. I mean, and I, I mean, I'm as much into the okay, here's all my show notes, here's all the cue. And I mean, I there's a whole bunch of production that goes into to security now every week, which which is one of the reasons I think that for those people who want that, we have that. But watching what goes on, the antics, you know, before and after, you know, that's different than the than the podcasts. But I, I really enjoy it. So well, I just want to make sure people knew there was something more available, and just to sort of turn the stream on sometime and see what's see what's going on. Because there's I'm flattered. Thank you. Often really good stuff. We so do our best. I keep listening to you talking about the Apple Watch. And and I just wanted to chime in off topic as it is, but you know, we're we're techies and, and so forth. Um that I completely think that all of this stuff is way early. And the analogy I draw, um, because there is one that you and I have lived through, is the laptop. The laptop took a long time to actually get practical to the point where it's in many cases now people's only computer. I mean, or it's their preferred platform. Um, But I mean, we went through, you know, three hour battery life and, you know, laptops and laptops with wheels and laptops with like really dim screens with, that were 80 characters by like 16 lines. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and a floppy drive where it was like, well, uh, uh, how do I get my data into there? Oh, you put it on a floppy and then you stick it in this little slot. It's like, no, 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 no. And so, I mean, so, and that we endured this, we early adopters for years. I was a Toshiba loyalist. And so I sort of followed Toshiba through and, and I mean, with, with with lifetime measured in minutes, ra- you know, battery life in minutes rather than in days and really bad screens and no, you know, peripherals or I.O., small storage. I mean, it, they they were really, you know, poor cousins of what we had on the desktop. And it took it really took the evolution of technology, which we went through to to enable the machines we have today. And so I completely agree. I look at these watches and I just have no interest for me at all. I, you know, I wear a wristwatch. I'm a wristwatch wearer. And occasionally I glance at it to see what time it is. And I don't have to shake it or talk to it or push any buttons or beg it or pray or charge 
or do anything. It goes for years on some battery that that I you know I go back to the jewelers and they change it because it's got a mechanical movement in it, and so I don't want to get any have you know they're able to do it in a dust free environment. But I mean it is absolutely well. In fact, I did have to deal with it uh, on Sunday because I had to change it by an hour, um, and it's polite enough that I can just twist the crown and the hour hand jumps by an by hour increments. So even going you know daylight savings times plus or minus isn't increasing my chance of having a heart attack on Monday or Tuesday. You heard us talk about that. uh 10% higher chance of a heart attack. Amazing. I know. Amazing. So anyway, I just, I wanted to to interject my two cents worth in about this, all of this watch business, um, which again, I I don't think it's bad, but I'm not going to get any of those arrows in my back. I'm going to wait because maybe someday It'll evolve to a point where we have a watch that just, I mean, it uses so little power that it, it's got solar, you know, it's got a solar strap, which just absorbs light from the ambient and keeps itself going. And then it updates an e-ink display so you don't have to mess with it. I mean, who knows? But I, I just, you know, so I, I, this is fun to see where we start versus where we are. I mean, I have a refrigerator full of tungsten palms that i thought oh this is the one i don't want to ever <laughs> i do mention that a, a bit and i hope you don't mind that i, uh, no. I, I uh, use you as no. an example yeah you know sometimes you get it right and you guys were talking about a mac break weekly the absolute ultimate calculator app in the world that that p calc oh you AKA like that, huh? Oh, my God. It is. And on the iPhone 6, it is a joy. It is my go-to calculator. And so I was watching the drama of, not that I use it in widget mode. It just sort of never occurs to me. But I was curious to see that it was there. And I have seen it in widget mode. But uh, it was fun to get uh, Renee's extra rich information into the background of that. Because, you know, I care about the the app and the author and its success. And in fact, I've edited mine. You just, you hold a button down and it's just very much like shifting the icons around on your, on your iOS device. You can then drag and you can move the buttons around and I'm using exponentiation, you know, because I'm doing scientific stuff um, enough that I've reordered. I've sort of, you know, changed the design a little bit. Uh, And it's anyway, it is a wonderful application there's an example uh, of something you already have. Yep. Uh, you don't really need, and yet uh, if it adds that much value, do you use it? I bet you use it in RPN mode, don't you? Uh, absolutely. Oh, what, God, what, you're what, such a geek. Why, what would you do with an equal sign? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean here are my two RPN. Oh, look, you got RPN. your HPs, yeah. Those are my, my, my two RPN <laughs> HPs, a, a 16, which does hex, de- decimal, and binary, and so forth, and then the scientific one. And uh, these are not in the refrigerator, but I do have a quite an inventory of them because so the twelve you know, C's. What are the, you said or uh, what we got sixteen C of 16C. course is the, is sixteen is is the uh, the the programmer's calculator uh, and it's got extra things like masking and rotation and and you know all that uh, setting bit and clearing bits and they're all programmable and then uh, the fifteen C is the is the scientific and it's just. You know, what you want, you want a, a, a device where, as we've talked about often in different contexts, where much like the telephone, 
the user interface fades and you're not conscious of it, that it, it's yeah. not in the way. It's just, you know, it just helps you get your job done. You know, when, when you're on the phone, you're not thinking about holding a handset and talking into a microphone. You, you, you reach through it into the mind of the person you're speaking with. And it's so the, that the UI becomes transparent. And, and for me, these calculators, once you get, you know, comfortable with them, that's the way they are. And this, and PCALC on iOS, oh, I mean, it's, it's a reason to have a phone is just to have wow. a lot for people who, so it's like, who it's, it's like an HP 16C on your phone. Basically, yes, wow. uh, with a bunch of really nice extra features. You can you can drag the display uh, to the left and to go to previous displays. You you can pull it down in order to shrink the keyboard and create more space for the the screen. So he's done, and, and oh, it's theme, it's skinnable, and he's got like I don't know how many dozens of skins, um, and I've just chosen one that I think is best but you know pe- people have you know opinions vary i think there's now probably a windows a windows 10 or 8 or whatever it is you know the the new flat theme skin um but anyway i just i really really like that so i'm gonna um, uh, i'm gonna install it right now on your recommendation oh leo it's just i mean if you're not someone who calculates then obviously i'm not, not but i want a good calculator value. i mean it, it is a beaut- it is the calculator the only it really, it's just last it. time I used a calculator. Well, occasionally I'll use it in the radio show, mostly for bandwidth calculations. I wish there were mm-hmm. like a bandwidth calculator. But uh, the last time I can remember that I wanted a calculator on my phone, I was visiting a friend in court. He's a litigator. And uh, it was a recess, and he had to quickly figure out what the damages he should ask for should be. And he said, <laughs> quick, give me your phone. <laughs> and he calculated it. Um, I thought... Okay, I would think you'd think about that ahead of time, but he won the case, by the way. Well, and the cool thing is, it's not like you have to carry a second calculator, or that is, you have a phone and a calculator. It's you know, back in the day, we were we used to carry we geeks a calculator because we didn't have phones that were that could do double duty. But here, you always have a really top end calculator with you, whether you're carrying your pad. Or uh, uh, your iPhone, and I'm sure there are good calculators over on the Android platform. But oh yeah, uh, you know what? I actually, know. I use Google a lot uh, because you can do calculations with Google searched, and yep, and you can actually do fairly complex calculations. With I use search. it for mo- uh, for monetary conversion yeah. and for units conversion. Sometimes you just sort of ask it the question, and it says like, "Oh, here you go." But you, you can know. do weird things, you know. Like, um, in fact, I should try this with bandwidth, like. How many hours would it take to download a 500 megabyte file with a three megabit connection or something like that? <laughs> and it's it's smart that way. It's kind of like Wolfram Alpha. There's where you go if you really got some serious stuff. That's like having yeah. Mathematica at your fingertips. Okay, so we're gonna. I have an important correction to make Uh-oh. at the top of the show yeah. uh, to a mistake I made last week. Uh, we're gonna talk about currency. Uh, the a an interesting. Uh, new entry into Tempest Broadcasting. Tempest, of course, is the famous technology for extracting information from from just the operation of a computer. Uh, and a Mac OS X privilege elevation that was recently uncovered, but I don't think is a big deal. Text Secure gets an audit. The EFF uh, finishes a comprehensive evaluation of messaging app security. Uh, another ruling on fingerprints uh, and passwords and our rights. Uh, 
um, and, and a nice little piece about state-of-the-art uh, TVs uh, and uh, a Q&A. So a bunch of great stuff to talk about. Holy mackerel! <laughs> all right, before we get to all of that, uh, can I just pause us for a moment and talk a little bit about uh, a topic near and dear to my heart. We call it backup. It's near and dear to everybody's heart. Actually, Steve's the only one who doesn't want you to back up because then if your hard drive fails, you'll use SpinRite and he makes some money. Everybody else... <laughs> You don't mind if I get people to back up? Absolutely not. No. I think it's uh, belt and suspenders. Exactly. This is the beauty of Carbonite Online Backup. It's automatic. It's continuous. It's off-site. Those are three things that I think are very important uh, when it comes to backup. Uh, whether you have one computer at home or several at your small business, Carbonite backs your files up to the cloud whenever you're online. And the problem with, I think, a lot of backup solutions is they're not automatic. They're easy to forget. Or you don't do them enough. Carbonite will back up external drives. There are plans for every kind of setup. They'll back up, uh, well, the base system, $59.99 a year for everything on a single Mac or PC or a laptop. You really ought to back up laptops. Hundreds of thousands of laptops are left behind Every week, not month, not year, every week uh, on, the car, on the conveyor belts at the uh, airports. <laughs> That's just one reason why you need Carbonite. So choose your plan and try it for free. You'll find out why 50,000 small businesses are using Carbonite. They back up now. Uh, it's kind of an amazing thing. 350 million files a day. I think the total number of backed up files is 30 billion. 30 billion backed up files. Uh, very reliable. They do have a Carbonite appliance for business that gives you everything you need. It's it's hybrid. It's local backup plus cloud backup with bare metal restore. There are just so many reasons why you want Carbonite. Go to Carbonite.com and read up on it. Figure out which plan is best for you. Do use security now as the offer code when you sign up. You don't need a credit card to try it. And by the way, every version of theirs, every version can be tried for free. HIPAA compliant if you're a medical uh, business? Absolutely. Use the offer code SECURITY now and you'll get two bonus months free when you decide to buy. Plus, and I think maybe this is even more important, they'll know you heard it about it on uh, Security Now. And that gives uh, Steve a little, a little Carbonite juice. He's collecting the Carbonite juice. Carbonite.com, offer code SECURITY now. Try it free, get two months free. With purchase, great for individuals and for small business too. Carbonite, you got to back it up. I wrote a little poem. You got to back it up to get it back. So do it right with Carbonite. Easy. Yeah, and you know we've talked about my mom receiving CDs back in the day. <laughs> you don't do that, and anymore, so though. I'm all into offsite. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah. that's an important strategy of an absolute, you know, zero. It's got to be zero risk policy. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Department of Corrections. Um, I, in answering the question that one of our listeners asked when he was talking about same origin policy, I got sort of sidetracked by the correctness of his, his supposition, which is no excuse because I didn't give him the correct answer. Um, it, and so I, and I missed the point of, of Adam Langley's note on his page when he said that you know any any web page is able to access uh any other domain 
Well, yeah, of course it is. The the same origin policy, what what it does is it it prevents any it, it prevents anything in one origin from accessing information in another origin, which is completely irrelevant to Poodle. The point is, it's not the the script in the browser that needs that that needs cross origin access because the attacker is outside and and so so it it's absolutely the case that script in a browser can cause queries to any other domain at once i mean that's what a web page is i often talk about how you know web pages are now composed of crap coming from 40 different servers 40 different domains so an external attacker is going to see the traffic from all of that, even if the page itself has no access to the content of those other domains. It doesn't need to. Poodle doesn't need it to because the the attacker is on the outside, and so it's like I, this. This hit me during breakfast the following morning. I, it was Wednesday morning, and I was just I don't know. I just was sitting there sipping coffee. I thought. Oh my lord! And I immediately tweeted uh, from from where I was. I said, "Realized that I missed the point Adam Langley was making about Poodle. JavaScript cannot get internal access to other domains." Next tweet, but JavaScript can cause the browser to make queries to other domains, and that's all we need since the attacker is outside to observe. And then the third tweet, I'll correct my confusion at the top of next week's podcast. In the meantime, that point I made was wrong. So I wanted to. Wow. Well, that's big that. of you. Well, that's correct. So yeah. I don't like to make mistakes. Everyone knows I try hard not to, but when they happen, they happen. So the only thing we can do is fix them. So that's fixed. Um, okay. Currency. I, I know you've been talking about it. This happened Wednesday morning, immediately after last Tuesday's podcast, and as so many things seem to, they, they, they happened the day after the podcast, so we have to go a whole week before we could talk about it. And it turns out that it was, a, it was certainly a black eye, um, and in looking at it more closely, it, it's also sort of not as big a deal as it was easily sort of made to be it turns out that it was apparently a security breach at the email provider that the merchant customer exchange mcx uses well um but i, I know i certainly mean i'm not making an excuse they gave for it to a third party so yeah so not secure not secure yeah and the third party wasn't secure so it doesn't matter who it came from if they lost it they lost it so for for people who don't know already, uh, in you know the day after last week's podcast where we were we were talking about this, um, currency had a, a what you'd have to consider a major breach because the email addresses of all of their uh, demo users and early testers leaked from the their email provider. Um, Decker's Davidson is the CEO of MCX. And so, you know, he tried to downplay this. Um, uh, but there were a couple interesting nuggets 
that uh, that were worth uh, that actually I saw as positive uh, just in terms of our interact of the world's interaction with him because um, he he did confirm that there is an exclusivity relationship for retailers who use MCX. That is, they are not also, as part of their agreement, not also able to use Apple Pay today. But two things he also said, there are no fines associated with exiting the consortium. Yeah, see, that's interesting. So you could drop out. Yes. But can you do MCX plus Apple Pay? And he said he that's not being ruled out in the future. Yeah, I bet it's not. <laughs> that's that's the second point. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That, this is a backpedal because really the whole point of yep. MCX was them both keeping your personal information to themselves, and Apple doesn't give you personal give them personal information, and disintermediating the credit card companies so they didn't have to pay the percent to them, and both things would happen with Apple Pay. So I think this is backpedaling. Yeah, which is fine. Yeah, I, I'm happy to away. Have, let, let's backpedal. Go, go, just go. turn that stuff on because yeah. we want to use Apple Pay. Yeah. What, however you do it, however long it takes. But the good news is that retailers can decide given if Apple Pay continues to happen. Because as we know, um, uh, what was it? More than a million credit card activations in the first three days. So Apple was, you know, was was out touting Yikes. their their initial launch success, and we'll just have to see how it goes. It, clearly, if it succeeds, and if any retailer, you know, Rite Aid, of course, who famously turned theirs off, if they realize people are going to Walgreens specifically because, you know, in protest, they're gonna they're gonna say, uh, "Sorry, MCX, we need to enable our customers to use what they want." And, you know, you didn't get your thing off the ground in time. So it's interesting because MCX actually began uh, two years ago, back in 2012. And it just it just sort of been limping along and, and didn't really happen. And I mean, even now, it's not happening until 2015, sometime next year. So it's like they, they may have missed the boat. We'll see. Um, OK, Air Hopper. Uh, many people picked up on this news, which is interesting. Um, uh, this was a the result of a group of researchers who presented a paper at what's called Malcon, which is a it's only been around relatively briefly at the IEEE Ninth International Conference on Malicious and Unwanted Software. I thought that was nice. That's sort of a nice title: the International Conference on Malicious and Unwanted Software. So, you know, it's not necessarily evil, but it's unwanted. And so we're going to call it, you know, that, that, that's under the umbrella. Anyway, so what these guys demonstrated was, was not Tempest as much um, as, as sort of a toned down version. Now, Leo, I, you've been around uh, as long as I have. I remember putting an AM radio, sitting it on top of an IBM 1401 sort of small mainframe. There certainly wasn't a mini computer. Basically, it could add, but, you know, it also wasn't very powerful. And playing, you know, Christmas music by <laughs> by feeding in punch cards. You did this? <laughs> that, that caused, oh, yeah, that caused loops to run at, at different, yeah, oh, it's awful. I can't believe you did this. Oh yeah, you were and hysterical. then 
And then years later, uh, I worked for a company called Mini Computer Technology, where not surprisingly, we had mini computers. And we did the same thing just because, you know, days are long back then. And again, you would tune a radio in between stations and it would pick up all kinds of noise from the operation of this machine that it was like sitting above because these these all these machines all used core memory and and core used pulses of current through wires to flip the magnetization of ring magnets into clockwise and counterclockwise directions so that required a, sub, a substantial pulse of current well that pulse of current that generated a local magnetic field also broadcasted electromagnetically powerfully so much so in fact that in in the, in my PDP8 mini computers that I have there's they consumed one of their precious card slots with nothing but a a a copper grid between the <laughs> between the core memory region that you sort of stick toward the back of the backplane and all the processing and I.O. because the, the, the core memory was generating so much electromagnetic noise from its functioning that it could flip bits in the, in the uh, neighboring electronics if you didn't have essentially, uh, essentially what was sort of a Faraday screen, you know, an electromagnetic screen. And card slots were precious, but they gave one up just to have this this barrier between the core memory and the and the rest of the computing electronics. So so the point is that although and and, and everyone has looked at modern day machines and noticed that that to varying degrees these things are 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 clearly noisy inside and they're the manufacturers attempt to to quiet them down to keep those emanations from getting out by doing all kinds of things you know you'll have you know uh, like like clearly conductive copper fingers that 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 reach out and touch the lid as you close it in order to create a an electrically conductive closed cage that 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 prevents leakage and you know people have seen those lumps on their cables which are specifically there to absorb uh sharp edges in the the transition of the current because edges nature doesn't like edges as we've talked about and those broadcast unless you snub them by trying to to by essentially running them through a big piece of iron that uh, that absorbs that transient so it turns out that today's computers are comparatively quiet, except that screens are not. Screens, by their nature, have to be sort of out there exposed, and they create a, a, an opportunity for broadcast. So what these, what, what, these, what these team of researchers showed was... If you could, and this is why this is not like a super danger. Remember that the way Tempest worked was that the idea was you could you could surreptitiously receive from a CRT enough enough emanation from it that you could decode the image it was displaying. That is, the the technology of the CRT was such that 
if you if you could aim like a parabolic dish from a distance through a window at the CRT, or even like the back of it, you could you could suck in all that data and process it and figure out what it was displaying. So, you know, modern LCDs don't uh, don't operate in in the same fashion. Don't operate at you know <laughs> at the same voltages at all. So what these guys showed, but but my my point was that you needed no preparation. Well, these guys showed if you could prepare, what could you do? Meaning that if you manage to infect, so you have to first infect the computer. And it then has malware, thus the Malcon conference. It has malware running in it, which is able to use the video subsystem to surreptitiously get an FM transmission out of the machine into a nearby recording FM radio. So you need a smartphone that is able to also receive FM. That is as in, you know, FM, you know broadcast FM, because that's about the frequency range they're able to put out. And that smartphone has to know where to be tuned. It's got to be tuned to the malware, essentially. Um, it's got to be within one to seven meters. So it's not long range. And it's able to, the, it's not super high bandwidth. It's only able to get about eight, about 60 bytes per second transmitted through this channel. So it, it, went, I mean, it was an interesting capabilities display. As we know, these things only ever get better. They typically don't get worse. So we could imagine successive refinement, much, you know, in, in any kind of a, of a proof of concept, these guys are just demonstrating that their first idea works. If you really needed to get down to it, it's very much like a modem. Remember that modems used to, you know, be happy to get 300 baud through a phone line. Now I can't believe the amount of data we get over copper, you know, you know, basically analog. dirty copper yeah. twisted. Yeah, analog twisted pair. It's unbelievable. So one could imagine successive refinements of this of this concept. The idea of of something rather than just being a passive leaker of information if you put something malicious in the computer that that was able to select what it wanted to send and arrange to use the existing channels to do so that you know it probably could on the other hand this is one of those things where there's like probably easier ways like oh and oh and the point was this was called air hopper because this would be for air gapped computers that was the point they were making I was, yes, yeah. if it was on the Internet or any net, then thank you very much for you know, the connection to the world. I'm not going to be limited to 60 bytes per second or seven meter range. I can talk to Moscow directly. <laughs> so um, but in this case, if the thing is, you know, off by itself in a basement and not connected and you think you're being really clever. Well, if something bad got in there, then it turns out. These guys demonstrated you could leak information at a low rate and in close proximity just through the video channel, just video noise uh, that you're able to control. So, uh, you know, a really interesting sort of a proof of concept.
there was concern about a Mac OS X privilege elevation exploit. I saw a couple people re- refer to it as zero day. And it's like, well, okay, except that it's it's a local privilege elevation. Apple knows about it. They'll be patching it. Um, and what it, it what it allows is it allows a bad guy who knows what to do, and this was not revealed. The it, w- it was demonstrated um, uh, at a recent conference, but the person who discovered it <clears throat> did not reveal what it was. He's waiting until after it's fixed, then he'll tell us what it was. So he's being responsible. So in that sense, it's not a zero day because it's not in the wild. Nobody, as far as we know, has figured out how to do this. What it allows you to do is to to en- to enable an admin account, which is the normal default user account on 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 a Mac, to obtain root privilege, which you normally don't have access to. You normally need you know extra magic in order to get that. Um, and so the workaround, they, they, I mean, if you were really worried about this, and I don't know that anyone needs to be, but again, it's a function of the environment of your Mac. If you're the only one using your Mac by yourself in your house, then I think you're probably fine. This is not a remote network takeover sort of thing. Um, but if you had a super high value Mac in an, in an environment where many people had access to it, and you and you're waiting until January, which is the earliest that we expect Apple to be able to address this. Then maybe you want to you'll go to some extra measures. It turns out you can create another standard admin account, and then you can reach over back into the original one and remove admin privileges from it, and then make that the normal default user account. So you've neutered that, and that's a workable temporary measure if you consider this a problem until Apple fixes it. But, you know, so consider all of that. It may not be even worth bothering about because it's not in the wild. As far as we know, nobody else knows how to do it. You do need physical access to the machine. And and we already know that pretty much anytime you have physical access, uh, the gig is up anyway. But you don't have to know the admin password to do this. Correct. It basically right. it's an admin password bypass. Right. Well, we Text that. secure that is uh, Moxie Marlin Spike's creation, and it has an interesting past. Um, as I as I recall, didn't it get purchased by Twitter, and then they open sourced it and released it, and now it's been audited, and so the news here oh, is oh, yes that. Uh, it, it and CryptoCat are the two open source solutions which have been audited and complete their across-the-board green stars. Um, the EFF just published a secure messaging scorecard. And in fact, the top of the, the first page of the, of the um, podcast notes this week, I have a, a sort of a small screen cap of that. But Text Secure passed the audit with one that these guys really dug deep. And it is a very complex protocol. I mean, it is like, whoa, eye-crossingly complex. Um, But they found something that they named the unknown key share attack. 
and found mitigations for it, shared it with the uh, developers of Text Secure who are already on fixing it. So from the from the just a, a snippet from the paper's abstract, they wrote, in this paper, we present the first complete description of Text Secure's complex cryptographic protocol and are the first to provide a thorough security analysis of text secure. Among other findings, we present an unknown key share attack on the protocol, along with a mitigation strategy, which has been acknowledged by text secure's developers. Furthermore, we formally prove that if our mitigation is applied, text secures push messaging can indeed achieve the goals of authenticity and confidentiality. So those are the two things you want. Text secure succeeds with a formal mathematical cryptographic strength proof. Um, so I'm sure text secure will shortly get revved uh, to close this one uh opportunity for the so-called unknown key share attack, which I didn't even look at because it's going to be gone before we can get to it. Um, And so we've got a a really useful uh, uh, proof of security for tech secure. And I'm installing um, it right now. How about Redphone? That's also from the same company from Moxie Yes, Spike. That's their secure phone solution. Yep. Also very good. Um, There is... Uh, uh, so I mentioned EFF scorecard. You may want to click the link and just bring this up on the screen while I'm talking. I love this thing, uh, by the way. They just put this out. Yes, right? it's just yeah, yeah, yes, just now. So they they analyzed a a basically all of the of the instant messaging uh, solutions under seven criteria: whether the the message is encrypted in transit whether it's encrypted from its provider, whether the contact identity, that is the other end, is verifiable, does it offer forward secrecy, which we know means if the keys are compromised in the future, are messages in the past vulnerable? Um, Is the code, the implementation code, open for independent review? Does it have a proper security architecture? And... Has it been independently audited under all of those criteria for all of the popular uh, instant messaging solutions? Only two are green for yes on get check marks uh, as opposed to slashes for all seven. And that's, as I mentioned before, CryptoCat and Text Secure. So those they are do. The guys. Uh, they do say red phone is uh, is also all seven, as is silent phone and silent text. Yes. So that's good. Yes. So uh, we can use yes. red phone too. You know, I thought red phone's kind of silly because you have to have red phone on both ends. But what will happen is you make a regular call using red phone, and the other end will still work, but they'll get a pop up that says, "If you'd like to have a secure phone call with this person, install nice. red." F- I love that. Nice. So that means it kind of works across the board. But yep. gives you this as a straightforward option. I'm going to install both of these. That's great. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 
Those the, those are the ones. There's also uh, ProPublica.org uh, has a, a, a sort of a different. It's a little more interactive. Uh, you're able to bring up the columns and then sort the columns by by qualification. I'd like to bring all the ones that have been audited up to the top, or all of the ones that that uh, provide good authentication up to the top. So you're able to, to and it's a, it's the, it's the expanded chart uh, that you found there at the EFF right. site. Right. So that's nice. Very nice. Thank you. Um, also in good news, we have one more judge. We're still sort of feeling our way through this question of fingerprint versus password and a Virginia circuit court judge ruled last Thursday the way we wanted them to, which is that a person does not need to provide a passcode to unlock their phone for the police. You know, we've pretty much already lost the battle of the fingerprint. That's That seems to be pretty much gone. But at least the issue of what you know cannot be extracted. That's still considered testimony, which is protected under uh, the Fifth Amendment to the in the U.S. I should say to, to the U.S. Constitution. Um, so uh, a, a couple quote snippets here: giving police a fingerprint, and, and this is from the judge's comments. Giving police a fingerprint is akin to providing a DNA or handwriting sample or an actual key, which all which the law permits. A passcode, though requires the defendant to divulge knowledge, which the law protects. And then, uh, lastly, a communication is testimonial only when it reveals the contents of your mind. We cannot invoke the privilege against self-incrimination to prevent the government from collecting biometrics like fingerprints, DNA samples, or voice exemplars because the courts have decided that this evidence doesn't reveal anything you know. It's not, therefore, testimonial. So um, so the takeaway is, convenient as Touch ID is, if you're ever in a situation where you may be losing access to your phone or you want, you want control over access, then you want to turn it, you want to do a hard turn off of the phone or if remember that touch id resets after 48 hours of non-use right right. and it's typically trivial to get your attorney (laughs) to create a two-hour delay that's only two hours two days two days a two-day delay so you know just you know file file some paperwork or you know whatever <laughs> and it's like oh wait a minute you know we're, we we require a, an extension or whatever and you know 12, 48 hours goes by and then even your fingerprint fingerprint won't unlock and of course if you wanted to be if you were in an environment where you thought it was worthwhile then don't register your thumb register you know an, a a more obscure finger because after four mistakes it locks and then requires you to enter your passcode, which, boy, you know, the court just cannot compel you to divulge. So, I mean, it's not a, it's not a concern I have, but I know that, uh, that there are listeners who really like to maintain, you know, keep a moat around their belt and suspenders. So uh, uh, this is where we stand at the moment. And, and again, it, I think the more, the more affirmation we have of the fact that you cannot be compelled to 
reveal a password, the better, because um, it it is testimony against. Oh, it was interesting, too, because in this case, it was weird. I remember when I was reading the case, it was somebody, there was something with a girlfriend. Um, I think he assaulted his girlfriend, and the police wondered if maybe there might be a video of that on his phone. And I was like, what? Who's going to videotape themselves <laughs> doing that in the first place? And I know that there is some issue in the law of how much, like, a fishing expedition. If they're like, well, we'd like to go look at the phone. It was like, well, of course you would. But sorry, unless you, you have probable some reason- cause. You have to have yes, probable cause. Yes, exactly. Probable cause. And, you know, there's so- a case, a uh, big case right now in California, as I'm sure you know, the CHP officers have been taking people's attractive young women's phones and looking for nude pictures and then sending them around. What? Oh, you didn't see that? No. Yeah. No, I, I must be watching them on the wrong channels. Yeah, well, it's... Wow. Uh, but, I mean, it raised, wow. at the point being... Why would they do that? That's just so... It's so wrong. Yeah. Uh, but that's the point, is that uh, uh, while there are constitutional protections and legal protections... Um, when you're in the hands of law enforcement, sometimes uh, it's scary and threatening. And if uh, you know, a police officer says, uh, "May I use? May I look at your phone?" People often, despite their legal protection, might say yes. They're intimidated. They're intimidated. Yeah, I mean, they they don't realize they're not going to get themselves in more trouble by saying no. And so, you, right. yeah. Wow. So yeah, I mean, I think that's shameful and and really. By the way, he was charged and fired. But good. Uh, okay, so uh, th- I just like this piece. This is a little fluffy, but this was Michael Prince uh, who contributed this short observation to Salon. He's counsel in the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law. So, you know, he understands what's going on. Uh, and, and so what, what he posted, just the, the, the beginning of his piece in Salon, he said, I just bought... Oh, and the reason I brought this up is many people tweeted this to me because they're like, oh, my Lord. It's like, well, good observation. He says, I just bought a new TV. The old one had a good run, but after the volume got stuck on 63, I decided it was time to replace it. I'm now the owner of a new smart TV, which Promises to deliver streaming, multimedia content, games, apps, social media, and internet browsing. Oh, and some TV also. The only problem is that I'm now afraid to turn it on. Actually, I may not even need to turn it on. You would be too if you read through the 46-page privacy policy. The amount of data this thing collects is staggering. It logs where, when, how, and for how long you use the TV. It sets tracking cookies and beacons designed to detect when you have viewed, quote, when you have, quote from the 46 pages, when you have viewed particular content or read a particular email message. It records, quote, the apps you use, the websites you visit, and how you interact with content, unquote. 
It ignores do not track requests as a considered matter of policy. It also has a built-in camera with facial recognition. The purpose is to provide gesture control for the TV and enable you to log in to a personalized account using your face. On the upside, the images are saved on the TV instead of uploaded to a corporate server. On the downside, the internet connection makes the whole TV vulnerable to hackers who've demonstrated the ability to take complete control of the machine. More troubling is the microphone. The TV boasts a voice recognition feature that allows viewers to control the screen with voice commands. But the service comes with a rather ominous warning. Please be aware that if your spoken words include personal or other sensitive information, that information will be among the data captured and transmitted to a third party, unquote. Got that? Don't say personal or sensitive stuff in front of your TV. You may not be watching, but the telescreen is listening. So it's like, oh boy, maybe it is time for us to read the privacy policies. I'm just so happy that I have a, a stupid 13-year-old car. This thing, this 2001, and I like it. TV. Because it does, it, no, car. Car. I, I'm, driving a, I'm driving a 2001 car and very happy because it's got low mileage, 100,000 miles, and I take good care of it. It's still running uh, just beautifully, and I don't want any brains in my car. I just want it to take me somewhere. Yeah. I, my yeah. TV does all of that. I couldn't. Who cares? I Nobody's know. listening. I know. Until they are. Well, maybe they are. Who knows? We have uh, a listener of ours asked me to mention. Uh, he called himself, it, well, his, his uh, Twitter handle is The Real Jampers, J A M P E R S. Uh, I put the link in the show notes for anyone who's interested. He's done a very nice sort of reference JavaScript implementation of the new Spritz cipher that we talked about. This is the, the recently released updated version of RC4, which really begs for simple implementations because, yep, there it is on screen. Uh, and very nice. If you scroll down and click on the, the spritz.js link uh, right there at the top, near the top in, in that little link zone, you can see his implementation, which is it's very straightforward. He's done some neat things, like he kept the variable names in his source identical to those in the paper. So it sort of represents a live running implementation of the the cipher that, that follows the description. So if anyone is was interested in in uh, messing around with that uh, and perhaps contributing. Uh, he'd love to have, for example, uh, you know, s uh, sample test vectors for the cipher and so forth. Uh, by all means, go over to, to that on, on GitHub. He credits um, you with the uh, inspiration along with Bruce Schneider. Oh, yeah. cool. You're in the source code, and man. <laughs> and, well, he is a listener of the podcast. Yeah. And I tweeted two links to 
a neat-looking sci-fi trailer. One of them was taken down due to copyright constraints by its publisher. So only one has survived as of this morning when I when I put the links. I was pulling the links over and checking them. And uh, but anyway, the the it's due out not too far not too far in the future, April 2015. Uh, out of habit, I tweeted 2014 and had to correct that. It's called Ex Machina, E-X space M-A-C-H-I-N-A. So you could Google that. Uh, it's on IMDb and it's on YouTube. And, ooh, it looks like some tasty, tasty sci-fi. So uh, uh, apparently it's uh, the, you get from the trailer that some young jock has, like, acquired or taken over uh, a major technical corporation and like he's looking through the books and he sees that there's some project run by sort of like off the books run by some genius who's been disappeared and so he takes a helicopter flight through over the river and through the woods out into this like way remote one person occupied R&D facility and discovers what this person has been working on so uh, it looks really, really tasty. So I'll just give everyone a heads up. If anyone who likes sci-fi, X Machina, go find it on YouTube. You'll be glad you you clicked the link. And then uh, you'll be waiting five months impatiently for it. And it's been quite a while since I shared a, uh, a one of our traditional Spinrite testimonials with our listeners. I've been talking about the technology and various sort of conversationally various aspects of it. But one was sent this morning at 2.03 a.m., which I guess is probably in the middle of Chris Day's day. Uh, But it's from Chris Day in Prince's Risborough in Buckinghamshire in the U.K. um, with the title, Spinrite Recovers a Samsung SSD 840 EVO from the performance restoration software. And I didn't quite understand that, but it turns out that performance restoration software is Samsung's software to restore performance, which <laughs> broke the which broke the drive. <laughs> so anyway, he said, "Hi Steve. I've been a Spinrite owner for several years now and have used your excellent product from time to time on my systems and servers at home." I recently heard about the problems with the Samsung EVO SSDs slowing down on your oh on your brilliant Security Now podcast with Leo. It was a trim, says, it was a trim issue. They weren't r- properly right. implementing trim. And he said, "I'm a CISSP and learnt all I needed to know about crypto hashing, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera, to pass the CISSP exam just from listening to your podcast over the last 10 years. As my laptop has a Samsung SSD 840 EVO, and Samsung have recently released the performance restoration software to resolve the slowdown issues, I decided to apply the update to my system. What harm could it do? <laughs> I downloaded and, and ran the software, following all the instructions. Apart from the backup, 
as all my data is synchronized with my server and I have a base build image of a patched Win 7 OS and core programs as I rebuild my laptop every six months or so. Good for you, Chris. You're doing it. So everything went smoothly. The drive firmware was updated. The laptop rebooted. And the performance restoration software went to work, rewriting every sector on the drive and completed successfully. I left the computer, and the next day when I came to start work, the laptop wouldn't boot into Windows. Oopsie. Uh I ran through several cycles of rebooting to make sure, and not even recovery mode would work. Nothing. So... I grabbed my copy of Spinrite and ran a level 2 scan on my Windows drive. 30 minutes later, Spinrite completed and its completion screen proclaimed all was well and nothing amiss. I rebooted the laptop and, as expected, it fired right up into Windows perfectly. Now, I can't give you a great sob story of how my life's work was on the machine, without any backups, and how Spinrite saved my children from destitution. But I can attest to the efficacy of the product and tell you and your listeners that it's the best $89 I ever spent. Yay. Regards, Chris Day, MBA, BSc with honors, C-I-S-S-P, M-C-S-A, C-M-C-S-E, C-I-T-P, and M-B-C-S. And X and X-Y-Z. Long-time Security Now listener and first-time contributor. And that's Chris, great. thank you very much for sharing I, your I success. <laughs> All right, Steve Arino, got questions for you. And I know you have answers. And I knew we'd be long, so I chose eight rather than our regular ten. So, Plenty. yeah, we're doing fine. But if I might, I'm just going to interrupt briefly to speak a little bit about a uh, issue near and dear to my heart, which is the issue of uh, email attachments. You know I say do not use email attachments. It's a great way to spread viri. And, of course, mostly I say don't open email attachments because even if they come from somebody you know, they often are attacks, whether uh, phishing attacks or spear phishing attacks or malware. So... What are you going to do? Because in business, sending attachments is kind of the lifeblood of business. You send contracts, spreadsheets, PowerPoint presentations. Well, I suggest ShareFile. And I, I just got an email from somebody. I want to see if I can find it. Who said, thank you for uh, telling me about ShareFile. I'm using it now. After 30 days, I continued the subscription because it's great. It really is a better way to share files in business. To exchange, I should say exchange files, really. Uh, no more uh, issues with security, but also... You know, as you know, when you send something through the email, it is pretty much a public document, not with ShareFile. First of all, you're not sending an attachment. You're sending a secure link via ShareFile. Um, that eliminates bounce backs from email, full email inboxes. It eliminates file size restrictions in general. No more security breaches. Nobody's snooping. Plus, you don't lose control of the file when you send it. You have absolute control. You can say who can open it, when, for how long, how many times they can download it. I'm a big fan of ShareFile. ShareFile makes it easy to use, too. With the Outlook plugin, it looks just like an email attachment. It's not. 
Uh, I use the ShareFile Sync tool on my Mac. They have a Windows and PC Sync tools that will let you. So what I do, I use ShareFile every week to send um, audio files to the radio stations. I record it, save it to the ShareFile folder locally. It gets synchronized to the ShareFile store on the cloud. And you can designate one or many folders for this purpose. Uh, so that now you automatically have access to that from the ShareFile uh, apps, free apps available for all the platforms. But you can also send a link either from your smartphone or your desktop or anywhere to that app, a secure link um, to your recipient. Makes it very easy. They get a nice big button that says download here. They, it couldn't be easier for them. They don't have to sign up for ShareFile or anything like that. They even support uh, right signature. You can add that to your account so that you have electronic signing, too. This is going to really eliminate a lot of the silly ways we do business uh, these days. And ShareFile supports a variety of industries and a variety of regulations in those industries. HIPAA compliant. Uh, it's branded for you. It's easy to use. And they have these great industry-focused solutions, the customizations they can do, that really solve problems that we all face in a variety of industries. So here's what I want you to do. Visit sharefile.com. Go to the front page there. And I'm going to have to get you to jump through a little teeny weeny hoop if you don't mind. Sharefile.com. At the top of the Sharefile homepage, you're going to see a link that says podcast listeners. For the free trial, please click that one and use uh, the offer code security now. That way Steve gets credit for it. And it's a way of showing support for the show. And we thank them for supporting security now, I might add. Pick your industry, medical, financial. It's compliant with regulations in many, many industries, completely customized, and then get your 30-day free trial. Share file from Citrix. It really is awesome. It really is awesome, and I use it every week, so I know whereof I speak. Sharefile.com. Please use the offer code security now, and you can try it free for 30 days. Steve, are you ready? Do you feel uh, you got your thinking cap on? I've had some more coffee, so yes. <laughs> During that break. I've been sipping. Paul from Burlington kicks us off with our Q&A, our listener-driven potpourri, as you are wont to call it. He, uh, he's been thinking about these persistent cookies for Verizon, and I guess now we know AT&T is also doing it. He writes, Stephen Leo, I thought, I, uh, I thought during the Q&A, if you want to block these cell uh, service provider cookies, well, use ProXPN. Because ProXPN is the only people that ever see the cell provider tag. The remainder of your browsing traffic will be within the encrypted payload. Of course, you could always just use Wi-Fi. Or better yet, both ProXPN over Wi-Fi. Is that true? Well, um, yeah, except that this, this spoke of a little bit of a confusion that I wanted to take the opportunity to correct. Because I saw this, that a number of people had it. Yeah. Um, what, what Verizon and AT&T are doing is they're... Adding, and this is actually why techno purists like me and so many others are annoyed. Yeah, is they're actually modifying the traffic. They're they're seeing a query in the clear, mm -hmm. not encrypted, going out of one of their subscribers, and they're adding their own header to our headers. And it's just, I mean, the idea that they're doing it, just, you know, that, that they're making a change to our headers. It would almost be like them, like, you know, 
them like they themselves monitoring the cookies that our browser is sending. I mean, who knows that they're not? They could be. But in this case, they're adding their own cookie because if the traffic is unencrypted, they can do that. And that's the key. Yeah. It doesn't matter how you encrypt it. You could encrypt it with ProXPN or just HTTPS. You know, they're unable to do this completely during any encrypted transaction, whether it's tunneling encryption that completely bypasses them or, you know, HTTP is a tunneling protocol. It bring, Technically, it brings up a standard TCP connection and then, is, and then negotiates with a handshake the, the keying and authentication that'll, that'll be used to verify the, the endpoint that you're talking to the server you expect. And, and then nothing that n- nothing you're doing in there is available to the outside. So these guys are completely blind to any form of encryption. So um, where, where Paul sort of misunderstood what was going on was he said that, you know, only ProXPN could see the service provider cookies. Well, in fact, there are no service provider cookies. They're, if either they're able to alter the actual headers in the query to embed their cookie or not. And if not, then they're, they're adulterating your traffic in, in no way at all. They are, they're, they're making no change at all. So any kind of encryption that you imply, yes, a VPN means that secure or non-secure traffic is protected, um, or if you if you can arrange you know for your all the sites you go to that you care about and more of the major sites every day are encrypted then now that's protection too so it ends up only being those sites that don't have persistent security where there's really um, uh, any any problem represented and we're you know we're seeing more and more sites bringing up uh, HTTPS all the time which is good. Greg, uh, writing from an undisclosed location, wonders about yeah. big data and its center security. Stephen Leo, longtime listener and all of that. Since the very beginning, the podcast usually covers down in the weeds technical stuff, but I've been curious about a larger strategic security topic. How on earth do medium and large websites stay online despite all of the constant zero-day exploits out there? And the complex software running behind most web servers. I wonder that myself sometimes. <laughs> there are always some vulnerabilities we don't know about. So wouldn't it make sense for attackers to use those on high-profile targets like Google or CNN? Obviously, these sites have a lot of redundancy built in, full-time security staff. But, you know, why don't we see more frequent defacing or takedowns of high-profile sites? What measures do businesses put in place to remain online? That's the kind of the more interesting question. Yeah, and, and I thought it was a great question, and uh, and I, you know, at one point as you were reading that, I was thinking, yes, on a wing and a prayer, um, but really, it is, it's the case that that if that we now understand how to do this, uh, I would argue that in the beginning we were still we as an industry kind of collectively we're still learning about things like cross site scripting vulnerabilities and cross site referral exploits and lord help us sql 
exposures. And so there were a lot of mistakes being made. And hopefully we saw other people getting bit by those and then fixed the same things we were doing before we got bit by them. But it's it, it so so it's definitely the case, uh, as Greg mentions, that these large sites are very complex, but but it isn't impossible technology to get right. It's just hard. So the fact that they've got a full-time IT staff and that they they scrutinize everything that they do and that they have an architecture designed for security that is designed with security in mind, it's no longer the case that you can... You, you can take a, a, a system out of the box and, and set it up and without any regard for security, go on the net, make this thing globally available with all kinds of bells and whistles and have no problems. You're going to have problems. And I remember the time about, back like 10 years ago or actually a little bit more when – when I was implementing my own e-commerce system from scratch, there were shopping cart applications you could get. That's the last thing I was going to do because they were all proprietary. They were closed source. And we kept seeing them having egregious problems. Well, we don't see that so much anymore. So so those lessons have been learned. That was the, the, we understand now to a much greater degree how 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 incredibly careful we have to be if we're going to put this this content on the net and it's still the case that the smaller less conscientious sites are having problems because they have unprofessional people who are sort of using the default uh, set up. They've got SQL Server running and with exposed ports because oh, it's convenient or that's that, that was the default settings. That where they're not bolted down, they're still getting low profile attacks. But the big boys really, you know, by by really focusing on on what the vulnerabilities are. I, Today, I think we've learned how to make them secure. It's, you know, we, we didn't understand that to the degree we do 10 years ago, but, you know, we're moving forward, um, thankfully. Yeah, I could talk about this on and on and on. Yeah. Because uh, we have to, yeah. you know, there's a lot we have to do. Um, but and, Well, and, 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 and like you guys have, have used things like Drupal, where there have been security problems, not in your code, but in the packages that you were importing. Right. And there was to, just to was get... a big one in Drupal itself. Yeah, that's why it came to mind. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, it's somewhat similar, though, in in thrust and idea to the way a normal user keeps themselves uh, right. secure. You keep updated. You keep up on what's going on. It's just that there's a lot more software. And you have a public face. So there is a place people can bang on you. Uh, yes. You know, at home, you have your public face is your router, and it's stupid. But right. uh, but we have a server as a public fa- you know public facing and, entity. So and and I think you know in the typical web experience, there you also have a more heterogeneous environment. That is to say, that many websites are assembled from pieces to fit the need. Right. And so many companies' needs are different. So no two are exactly the same. And so there can be unsuspected interactions between them to create um, 
opportunities for exploitation that, that exist here but not there. Right. So it's not it's not easy. And, and you're right, Leo. It, you just it's something that it's important to do uh, and it's worth doing. And, and look at the value that we now get from our sites. It's just you know it's the way the world works. Yeah, but it's do it's doable. It's not yes. as hard as, as and as you say, we've learned a lot. From uh, Pedro Tareño in Porto, Portugal. Oh, I like this. Let's just go there to answer this in person. <laughs> Steve, my name is Pedro, and I know I'm saying it wrong, Pedro. Tareño from Portugal. I'm a new viewer and listener. Mm-hmm. And enjoying the podcast very much. Regarding the comparison on digital certs, besides the support level, there's another big difference. To my knowledge, there are three kinds of certs. The DV, Domain Validation. The OV, Organization Validation, and the EV, Extended Validation. The DV will only validate the domain and can be done automatically and quickly. The OV will do the previous analysis, additionally verify the domain is registered to a company and that the request comes from an authorized individual at that company. The EV, well, that's an exhaustive analysis, which includes the previous ones, plus furthers uh, verifies the identity of the company making the request. Keep up the good work. Regards, Pedro. I really appreciated this. I don't think I've stre- I've stressed enough that that this is the way certificates break down. I know I've talked about extended validation from a technology standpoint extensively, um, but I but I thought I, I was glad for Pedro's uh, addition here because we were talking about the cheap certificates and and you know like scratching our heads like wait how can this be whatever it was, $4.80 a year or something. Well, that it is only for domain validation. That is, the, essentially, the, all they're asserting is that, that, that the certificate for the domain uh, is for the domain. And so it, it's, it's sort of the, the, the default um, level of establishing a secure connection with a remote server. But we've also said oftentimes that's all you need. I mean, increasingly, it's useful to know that you're really connected to an authoritative source. So PayPal and eBay and and GRC and, and other properties will be protected by an extended validation domain broadcasting the fact that that to the you know that that the it was a that all of this research that uh Pedro enumerated did go into and goes into continuously every 2 years because that's as long as those certs can live to assert absolutely what's what's known about the entity that that was issued this certificate which the server you've just connected to has provided to you. But, you know, for blog posting and protecting, uh, you know, low-level properties where you just want privacy, that there's absolutely nothing wrong with the, the so-called domain validation certificate where the only thing it's asserting is that this is a certificate for this domain. So, good luck. And... And so they're not very expensive. And we would like them not to be yeah. very expensive yeah. because we'd like to promote the use of HTTPS everywhere and as as much as possible. They can have longer lives, so they're less inconvenient. And, and all they're asserting is uh, this is a certificate for that domain. And that's all we're saying. So 
I, I'm I really I'm glad Pedro mentioned this because I have not gone into enough that there really is this spectrum from minimal uh, assertion to maximal uh, assertion, and what you pay for is the is the work on the other end of of standing behind those. Yeah. Hey, let's take a break. We've got five more. Steve Perfect. Gibson's answering your questions nicely. That's, he does that well. But before we continue on with that, can I uh, m- m- make a recommendation? Another great Citrix product, Citrix Go to Assist. Now, this is not for everybody. Many of you listening are in IT or customer support. Maybe you are uh, running an IT operation. You probably have heard of Go to Assist. I would hope so because it is. After all, the number one global market leader in remote support, GOTOassist.com. You know, you go to assist, right? You know them. Well, I just want you, if you don't know about them, to give them a try because they are pretty remarkable. Uh, and I am very sympathetic, I might add, to the challenges that uh, you live in uh, trying to support people, especially nowadays with Bring Your Own Device. You've got mobile, you've got desktop, you've got laptop. And, of course, uh, despite the complexity of the world you live in, it's no less urgent that you handle those report support requests quickly, keep people productive. You make sure, we were talking about security, of course, your network security is never compromised. But it also has to be easy for your customers, your users, and that's why GoToAssist is great. In fact, so popular, I think, with customers as well as uh, support pros. I know when I use GoToAssist with my mom, she just loves it. She loves it. It's an easy-to-use cloud-based remote support solution. lets you solve problems faster. You can do live support, but also unattended support to any computer or mobile device from practically any computer or mobile device. The GoToAssist apps on your iPhone, your iPad, your Android device are really awesome. You can screen share with employees so you can see what's going on, diagnose and fix the problem faster. Uh, and it sets up in just a minute. In fact, when you send them the link, they click it and boom, they're going. They're go- you know, you're in there. Whether you're supporting one coworker, ten employees, or even a thousand seats, you got to try it. Go to Assist. I got a 30-day trial for you. Visit gotoassist.com. Click that big "Start My Free 30-Day Trial" button, and uh, I have a feeling you'll—if re- you haven't used it before—you'll really be impressed. And if you used the other, you know, kind of not so good solutions, you'll really be impressed. Citrix Go to Assist. Visit gotoassist.com. Click the "Try It Free" button, and you got 30 days free to try it. Free. If that makes any sense. <laughs> it's free. Uh, question number four from Troy K. in Kansas. He says he's wondering about secure arrays and enhanced secure arrays. I use secure arrays to clear SSDs. The following site discusses the difference between secure and enhanced secure erasing. It's uh, partedmagic.com. Uh, I admit I'm confused by how this would work on a spindle drive, but it makes sense on a solid-state drive. A verbose report could be generated at the end of the process. I've had the media tested. Data has not been recovered from these drives. There appears to be some documentation uh, available, but you know what? We get this question a lot. It is worth revisiting the topic because you are the king of hard drives. Well, and I'm going to – I wanted to say – he he asks, is there any chance we will revisit the topic? And – I still have a, you know, my own um, drive erasing utility on the burner uh, for work or for for creation after I'm through with the Spinrite series oh, good. and bef- 
and well, well the spin right six series and before i start on seven um i have a trademark on the name beyond recall for years so this is something i've always thought made sense um so rather than attempting to address it now i'm going to wait until uh i am deep in the weeds developing something that w- that will be able to claim absolute mastery wow. over erasure and <clears throat> at that point we will know all about it but there is there are specific challenges to solid state that don't exist with spindle drives because of the wear leveling right well kind of except that the the um the physical media has sector relocation and it's sort of, it's different than wear leveling wear leveling is is being done on uh, on the fly all the time in order to in order to as it sounds like level the wear on an area what's been found is that access patterns across a large uh chunk of mass storage is extremely non-uniform you know you've got a swap file typically um you, you have uh, you know, a uh, uh, temporary file directory. You have you have the the even the directory tree itself. That so-called metadata sits in specific sectors and clusters on the drive, and during the course of use, m- many of those are being rewritten to a much greater degree than, for example, the original OS files that are only being read. They're, they're almost never being rewritten. Or files, you know, like applications that you install, and they're only being read and never written. So, but, but as we know, these solid-state drives fatigue because the way they work is by deliberately stressing their insulation, by forcing electrons through an insulating layer and stranding them um, to create an electrostatic charge, we are able to store a bit. And the act of pushing electrons through the insulation fatigues, it breaks down that insulation over time. And so reading is, it, it, it doesn't require moving electrons. It requires only sensing them. But writing requires that we either pump or pull electrons through that insulating barrier. And so that fatigues the drive. What that means is that excessively writing in one area will physically fatigue certain locations. So understanding this, this this sort of a, a meta architecture was developed where unused areas, the actual contents of unused areas would get replaced with the contents of heavily used areas. That is so that even though from the outside, we always appear to be writing on the same physical sectors, the same sector numbers, there is a, there's a translation layer which says, oh, when he, now at the moment, we've moved that data over here because it was being written a lot. So now it's over here. So intercept the, a, a, any read and write requests to this range and send it over to that range. And so this process is going on all the time. What that means is that it may be that some areas of the drive 
have older data that has stopped being written to in favor of where leveling, which is writing to a different area, yet that if, like, forensically, if you were to penetrate that translation, that, that, that meta-translation layer, and access all of the physical drive, you could find data that you thought you'd erased, but you'd erased it through the translation layer, which wouldn't have given you access to this out of this briefly out of service previously written area so what the the what secure erase does is essentially says okay we're we're deliberately shutting down meta translation we're going to do a true physical access to the actual media and one last time, or, or maybe not, if you want to keep using the drive, but we're going to absolutely wipe it all so that no one can get to it again. And so this is similar to the secure erase function on hard drives because hard drives take sectors out of service, which the drive no longer trusts. It may still be readable. It's just that the error correction required started to freak the drive out. It's like, uh, this is requiring near my maximum amount of correction or retries in order to read it at all. Uh, this is getting flaky. I'm going to stop using it. But the, it leaves the data there because it's in a hurry. Sort of, you know, someone's waiting for their data. And so it just says, okay, stop using it. We're going to copy. Now that we did successfully recover the data from that sector, we're going to put it over here. And future references go here, not there. But the data is still sitting there. So, again, the, the, the different types of erase penetrate these, these translations uh, in, in different ways and to different degrees. But it turns out it's not simple. It's not just a matter of saying, oh, format, yeah. which, you know, we learned long <clears throat> ago. Right. Peter Norton famously taught us that format does almost nothing. Because <laughs> if, if, you, if you can have an unformat command, you know you didn't really achieve much. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, you know that, that drive you formatted? Could you stop that? Curtis, It'd be like unerase. Oh, I, I want yeah. to issue the unerase command. It's right. like, wait a minute. If, if you can do that, then uh, we, got, we, got, we got a problem here. Yeah. yeah. Curtis at Phoenix wonders about credit card payments with Squirrel. Uh, Squirrel is, of course, Steve's uh, amazing, magical uh, website authentication protocol that he's... To be demonstrated uh, momentarily, actually. Oh. Yeah. It's, uh, we're about exciting. to have it... It's about to be running. That's exciting. Can't wait for yep. that. I envision scanning a QR code displayed in a payment terminal by my phone. Use, he says, using Target as an example, I set up an account at Target.com with my CC info and my Squirrel ID. When I'm in the Target store, the terminal displays the QR code. I scan that with my phone. And then the magic happens by telling Target who I am, or, you know, authenticating. And then using that credit card information that Target already has on file. Uh, now, granted, they'd still hold a database of credit card information that could be stolen, but I would think those databases are more secure than the pay terminals. These options would make it just that much harder for an attacker to gain information. Another option would be to transmit the credit card info or some ID like Apple Pay uses. In the, I got the hiccups. Sorry about that. In the, <laughs> in the squirrel conversation between my phone and Target's servers. That way, they wouldn't even have to store the credit card number. What do you think, Stevie? 
Okay, so I'll talk while you get some water or drink upside down. I am going to drink upside down. You know, I did hear that like a spoonful of sugar, uh, that's That's the the one. actual remedy. Not an old wives' tale, but scientifically proven. Knocks them right out. Calm the spasming diaphragm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, Okay, so, Curtis, yes. Um, It's true that... Exactly what he suggested would work. Squirrel is well, the bent. The the from my standpoint, I, you know, people are starting to ask about Fido and does does Fido make Squirrel obsolete or how, you know where does it sit and so forth. The 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 thing that I like about Squirrel that I still like about Squirrel is its incredible simplicity. It is what it what it is. It it's in its heart is a very simple. Uh, using state-of-the-art but easily explainable crypto authentication system, it it of it avoids the re, the the problem with replay attacks. The, the the problem with a credit card is replay. A credit card attack is a replay attack. Someone gets your credit card and they use it again. They replay the number that they got. So uh, and and username and password replay. They capture your username and password and they replay it. They use it again. So what Squirrel does is it just is it is like the smallest thing you could do to solve that problem, which is you have a secret and the server generates a random challenge which you sign using your secret and you send back to the server. Your sign, your signature of its random challenge. Only if you, and the challenge is always random. So we solve the replay attack. It's the server's never going to, or never going to predictably offer that same challenge again. And only if you're really you, do you know, do you have the secret that allows you to sign that random challenge? So when that goes back to the server, it checks the signature. And it says, oh, yeah, someone just signed this correctly. That must be him because nobody else can. And that's, it's that simple. So, so what Curtis described is, is how you would use a generic authentication system. And that's what Squirrel is. It's a generic, simple authentication system, but it's cryptographically secure. How you would use it for credit cards. And so it's while it's, yes, that would work, my feeling is, well, but then so does MCX and Apple Pay. And so if if alternatives didn't already exist that people were already going to be using, and if we sort of like needed Squirrel for that, then yeah, it could certainly work that way. But I'll be surprised if that happens. On the other hand, websites in general is still my target because they still haven't got a, a universal, simple, comprehensive solution to replace use, usernames and passwords. And, and Squirrel does that very easily. So I, I think there it makes sense. It could absolutely, I mean, I know the reason I spent some time on this is that, is that there's all kinds of applications for authentication. Maybe we will see this simple protocol that, that I've developed for Squirrel used elsewhere. Um, and I know people are going to be saying, hey, how about this and how about that? It's like, yeah, it can do anything 
where you have a, a random challenge and you are able to assert your you by signing that challenge and sending it back. Um, it's able to do that. So, you know, the, what enables this that we have now is um, is smartphones or clients in our machines. It used, you know, once upon a time, all we had, we, you know, we didn't have those. So we had to use a username and password, something that we could memorize that didn't change. And of course, we now know that's dangerous in all kinds of ways. So the good news is that, you know, the world has moved forward. It's easy to run clients in our computers or our smartphones that are active and have the, the computational power to do a crypto, to answer a cryptographic challenge. And so that's really all Squirrel is. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's pretty simple. Does it eat nuts? I'm sorry. It can do that, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having some right it now. Can, it can solve your hiccups. Mm-hmm. I'm eating a little sugar. It worked. Bubba it, Mustafa. Or is it Bubba? Bubba Mustafa. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sure it's his real name, and I shouldn't be laughing. Wonders about the long-term data storage. It's a beautiful, uh, fun name. So Bubba okay. Mustafa. Man, if my name were Bubba Mustafa, I would be so I love happy. It. I love it. Steve, I heard you talking about uh, data decay. What are our options, say, for a true 10-year retention? Do archival quality CDs and DVDs live up to the sales pitch? The CD version seems just to be the original gold CDRs when CDRs first came out. Now, I have to admit, for regular CDRs, I have had the aluminum coating just delaminate and peel right off. Thanks. Still haven't needed to use my spin right, but I'm happy to know it's there for the inevitable. So, you know, this is really a good question. And I'm finding myself wondering, you know, if maybe the cloud isn't like like redundant cloud provider storage isn't a solution. You know, sort of making it somebody else's problem, essentially, and maybe adding some redundancy. The, the problem is, you know, I mean, we talk about time capsules. And the the fact, for example, that many people would have a hard time today reading a floppy. And I mean, and that's a three and a half inch floppy. What about, you know, a big one? I think I've got one around here somewhere. Actually, I have a bunch. I've got five and a quarters and eight inch floppies. Now, someone says, OK, I have an eight inch diskette with data on it that I need. What are they going to do? In fact, I, I saw somebody um, on one of your podcasts. You'll probably remember it, Leo. And in the last month or two or something he was having a business uh maintaining drives yep. that would be able to pull obscure data formats off of media it was a it was on the radio show oh okay yeah so uh, yeah this is a and we talk about this a lot on the radio show i think um this is something people are kind of interested in and i always say you know you want paper. something to last forever <laughs> yeah and not even paper you know carve it into stone because that's the stuff that's lasted thousands of years. Uh, we know that CDs and DVDs de- not only delaminate, but uh, they they can get in humid climates. They can rust. What you're holding up a QR code? What is that? I'm ho- I'm holding up what my squirrel client uh, puts out. See, and it, and because it is it is something that I absolutely know. I can't seem to get it centered, but but there is the uh, an ASCII version. Of a squirrel identity. That's what the because, QR code says. Yes. yes, and so you could either you could either scan it with the QR code, mm-hmm. but if you are even absent 
a camera. I don't know how that would happen. You but, type it in. You know, type it in. It's not that yeah. long. Yeah. It'll tell you if it's right or wrong, and and then you go for there from there. So, so I'm sorry, but I yeah, agree with uh, you on the it, cloud thing because really the issue um, once it's once it's bits, we've kind of solved some of the problems. Yeah, uh, because it's infinitely copyable and perfectly copyable. So there's no copy degradation. And right. that was that's a big issue with print, with you know handwritten stuff and so forth. Oh, those monks—they did amazing work. Yeah, didn't they? but there's still errors tra- would creep in transcription errors. Yeah, sometimes they were little embellishments, and you know, <laughs> they, get, they I mean, they were bored. If you were a monk, you'd have a hard time too. It's like this is such boring text. <laughs> so once you've Let's got it in bits, it and- you, you've kind of you've done a big thing. But now we have to keep it on on media that doesn't obsolete. And you know, you, you yes. mentioned floppies, but zip disks, orb drives. Bernoulli drives, um, Winchester yep. Media, all of those things, <laughs> they yeah. seemed like they'd be good enough, but, uh, you know, a few years and they're gone. So I like your cloud idea because what you're really doing is you're transferring the issue over to the cloud provider. Sure, it's on some format that will be obsolete probably, you know, sooner than later, in a decade they'll or two. migrate it. But they are now going to migrate. Yes. As long as they stay in business, they're going to migrate. So, yep. I mean, then that's what you could do. Keep it on a hard drive and then every few years rewrite it. Keep it, keep it on several hard drives. What is the, although of the physical media we have available yeah. to us now, what do you think is the most robust? Optical. Everybody agrees that, op, it's, even though it seems sort of counterintuitive, the recording technology. Now, again, it is the case that we've, we've seen problems with discs delaminating and the aluminum layer oxidizing and that being a problem. But that's why they use these gold discs and so-called archival quality. I've seen studies done that said archival uh, grade CDs and DVDs truly have a hundred year life. Um, that is, you can record on them. You, you gotta keep them in the dark because uh, a little bit of light coming in can will accrue essentially sort of like film slowly uh, you know slowly fogging over time if you allow any light to get to it so you've got to store them in the in absolute dark in a sealed um moisture controlled dark container but everything that all, all the tests i've seen where they deliberately aged these things if you need your own media that's what I would do. I wouldn't trust a drive, fr- frankly, because, I mean, they've got, you know, bearings and it's it's a high-tech device. And what, they last for, what, maybe three or four years? And then it's like, oh, well, I need. I mean, unfortunately, their capacitors are growing so much and our need for, for storage is growing so much that we're constantly moving upwards in drive size. But, um, but yeah, if I and, had this, like... The best thing would be multiple forms of media, right? I mean, this is the yeah. So don't trust any one. I mean, not merely well, optical, but optical and hard drive, or maybe Blu-ray and DVD. I mean, just multiple choices, right? Yeah, and, and you ought to also consider maybe if you had, if you were like writing to CDs and the DVDs, store the drive you used along with them, mm-hmm. put them into the time capsule, because um, the chances are. You know, depending upon what the future holds, it, you'll have the drive that that was able to read them once, and then your job is an electrical interfacing one right. to the drive, rather than oh my lord, how do I 
you know, get the optical tracks off this thing, right. you know. So it's a, so that's a, an easier problem. Also, you know, you'll notice that I mentioned redundant cloud usage. Was it BitCasa that just announced they were shutting down oh. and everyone's storage was being bye lost? Bye. Yeah. Yeah. So more and than so, one cloud server service. Right. Right. Or and keep an eye on use, their businesses. <laughs> use like Amazon or Google or Microsoft. Use use a major league right. provider that's you know that has you know instead of Bitcasa, which is like okay, well you may like them, but that you know obviously they they decided they were changing their mind about what they were going to do. Amazon so has this glacier this glacier solution, yes. which is inexpensive. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, it's very cheap because it's slow to restore. It might take a day to get your data, but who cares? Yeah. It's actually offline storage. So they're, they're filling up something, whether it's drives or they might even be using those really cool, like tape spool technology where, you know, they fill them up and then it's like, it's actually not accessible electronically in real time. Somebody or something, a robot arm or a person Mm -hmm. has to go get it and plug it in in order to access it. So, yeah, I, I, I really think, you know, there, there's a, the, 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 the problem of destroying data is, is a big one, but the problem of really keeping it archivally available is, is interestingly big too, because actually, because we don't really think about it much. It's not a problem everybody has, but some people have them, that problem, and there isn't really, you know, anyone really addressing it. When we sent a V'ger out into space, <laughs> yes. we put a gold disc in it because gold, uh, not because gold is so pretty and, and valuable, but because it doesn't corrode. Right. Uh, and it has, I presume it's not analog. Maybe it is an analog recording. I guess, yeah, it probably is because probably any relatively advanced civilization could figure out what to do with that. But Yeah, they did a bunch of neat things. They did things like... They, the size of the raster scan on the image was two prime numbers. Mm. So there was, o- there was only one way to decode this into so, a rectangular. Yeah. So that's when you get clever. really big brains thinking about it. <laughs> well, how would we communicate with a completely alien intelligence? And oh, by the way, it's right. got to survive millions and millions of light years in space. Yeah. And they know nothing about us. And they look at this gold disc and go, hmm. hmm. Well, let's see. That, oh, that, I see it. This looks like a spiral. And then they well, eat it. Oh, and look there. <laughs> <laughs> Cookies. Because right. they're exactly. It's, it's Love right, that gold. They're, they're, they're creatures that live on gold. It's, like, Ooh. it's good gold. Or they immediately melt it down and right. resell it. Pretty. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is an analog track, apparently. I think analog makes the most sense. Although ones and zeros, binary is pretty well understood. I, th- I think you could, you could deduce that there's information in the switching back and forth of ones and zeros. Maybe not. It's not, you know, decimal. That would definitely be anthrop- anthropocentric. Yes. Fascinating, though, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Kevin in North Carolina wanted to clarify. Oh, this is from uh, last time. You know, and those meteors that land on Earth, Leo, we just think they're rocks. Little do <laughs> we know. <laughs> oh, we just look. Think, look at that rock. And we pyrite. stick it in a glass case. It turns out that's a desperate attempt at communication, and we've completely missed you the know, point. That actually seems reasonable, <laughs> frankly. What would be the chances that we would recognize the communication? Yeah, it's like, what's this, what's this rock? Yeah. Kevin in North Carolina, I wanted to, because uh, we, we talked, we answered his question. So, short, it says, short-time listener Kevin here again. 
Thank you for addressing my previous question uh, regarding random MAC addresses. We, I didn't mean to be, I don't mean to be a pest, but I wanted to clarify. I wasn't referencing the Apple randomization while searching for Wi-Fi. Oh, because we had ah. been talking about that recently. Right. My feedback was in regards to another question that came up previously about MAC addresses in general. The listener asked, why doesn't every device use random MAC addresses? Why even bother having a fixed, unique MAC address? It doesn't make any sense. So that's back to four episodes ago that we answered that one. As was discussed yep. then, it's feasible to have randomly created and assigned addresses, but there is a value in a fixed, unique address because it defines, the, uh, for instance, the manufacturer. That's the first few digits. So that's what he was asking about. Anyway, thank you, Kevin, for the clarification. I don't think we have to say much about it. No, I, uh, I'll just add that we, you know, that back then when we originated Ethernet, bits were expensive. They were slow and they were expensive. And so it made... So to have a random MAC address, you'd have to have many more bits and somehow assign them randomly. Um, and that just didn't make as much sense as chopping it up into two halves and making one be the manufacturer and one be this manufacturer's serial number. It was a clever scheme that has survived even to this day. So anyway, Kevin, yeah, thank you for the clarification. Finally, our last question comes from Ottawa. Peter Sisak has been catching up all the way since episode one. Woo. First of all, I want to say that uh, I love Security Now and Twit. I only discovered your show a few months ago. After listening to a few new episodes, I decided, you know what? I need to start from the beginning. Holy cow. <laughs> so, holy cow. So for the last few months, I've been trying to work my way through everything since episode one. I can't tell you how daunting a task that is, but I find there's always something useful as such. I haven't been able to bring myself to skip too many episodes. I really wish I had discovered this show years ago. In a way, it's really interesting to listen to the old shows today and hear you guys go on and on about all the stuff that was happening a decade ago. A decade yeah. ago! Our own time capsule. Yikes. Obviously, there are a ton of things that are long forgotten today, but it's also funny how some things eh, just never change. With that, I wanted to ask you a question about an episode I just listened to, namely episode 81, in which you discussed the Google report on hard drive reliability. Forgive me if you've done something like this more recently, but uh, 81? <laughs> you mean 400 episodes ago? Eh, that's recent. Uh, I was wondering, 400 episodes ago, we do 50 a year. All right. I was wondering if there's any way you could touch on that topic again, but speaking to today's hard drives, is smart still as dumb as it was then? Yes. I'm personally running a free NAS server with a RAID Z configuration consisting of two, several two-terabyte drives. I'm relying on smart tests to warn me about impending disk failure so I can go buy a new one in time. But now that I listen to episode 81, it's kind of shattered my sense of conflict with that setup. As a secondary question, does Spinrite do anything with SSDs? I never knew about Spinrite until I knew about the show. And basically everything I have today runs an SSD. Really? Is two terabyte drives or SSDs? No. Thanks for the great work you guys do. I'm slowly catching up. I'm now, ladies and gentlemen, on episode 82. <laughs> wow. So, Peter, here's my advice about catching up. Don't be in a hurry. Don't worry. I mean, first of all, the information, we're archivals, our archivists. I've got a lot of mileage left on me, and I intend to have all of these 10 years online for the foreseeable future. Um, so unless you're 95, 
you're going to have time. So I would say don't don't be daunted by it. Don't press yourself. Also, try not to skip them because there really is often, you know, surprisingly good stuff every so often in these things. So, you know, I can't, unfortunately, I can't vouch for them all. But I, gen- I think generally people uh, n- never feel like they've had just had a really dud <laughs> Security Now podcast. So um, take your time. Um, smart is all you've got. So it's better than nothing. But as Leo added, it is still dumb. The problem is... It hasn't gotten any that, smarter since then. Let's no. That way, yeah. the, the, the reason Spinrite and Smart work so well together is that Smart can't tell you anything about the drive that, that it doesn't experience. And as we were just talking about how lopsided access patterns are typically are in drives where a very small area of the drive is in heavy use. It's, it's the fact that Spinrite goes out, uncovers the entire drive, while monitoring the feedback from Smart that makes the two of them together smart. Now, Smart will warn you if it, on the fly if, there, if it's seeing a problem in advance of a collapse but it has to experience that for that warning to be useful. So, so that's really where where Spinrite comes in handy. Smart's better than nothing, um, and and having a RAID architecture which is able to periodically query Smart because it's not an announcement protocol; it is a query response protocol. You got to ask the drive how its smart subsystem is feeling right now in order to get a response. Spinrite polls smart on the fly and dis- and displays and analyzes the information that it gets from the smart subsystem in order to determine what's going on. Um, your RAID system is also polling uh, periodically to, 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 you know, to check on the health of the drives as they're reporting it. The problem is they don't know about areas that they're not accessing dynamically and really what's what's really interesting is that spinrite works the drive hard and we see the smart health being like depressed by spinrite and then overall over time it recovers because i mean and that represents some problems on the drive that are of a severity you can judge based on how far depressed the drive reports its health to be but the point is it it has to be doing work in order to in order to judge the health of its ability to re, to to read and i'll just close by saying uh, that in the testimonial in this podcast you just heard uh, assuming that you're still listening to the current ones and not well, you'll hear it in a couple saying, of years anyway you'll hear when you catch up yeah <laughs> hello from 2014 uh, to those of you in 2018 Exactly. The testimonial was about this guy using Spinrite to recover an SSD that the SSD's own manufacturer broke when it was trying to to fix it. So, yes, Spinrite absolutely does repair SSDs. And we've actually you'll find as you as you catch up many other testimonials from SSD users, uh, which is actually one of the reasons that I decided to get get interested in in a future beyond Spinrite 6, which I call 7 because even though magnetic media may be, you know, may stop spinning, it looks like the solid state stuff still needs us. Nice. My friend, we've come to the end of your question <sighs> and answer session. 
Right on time. Right on time. On time and on budget. And with no hiccups. And with no hiccups. Of any nature. <laughs> well, I <had> little hiccups. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Uh, Steve's so great. We, uh, I love doing this show. And it's 10 years. It seems like nothing. It does. Uh, and it's, it's funny. You talk about episode 81. It's like, wow, I remember that Google driver liability oh, yeah. report. And that, that didn't seem that long ago. No. But I, I guess it was. It goes fast. Yeah. Um. We, lo- we love doing this show. And Steve will be back next week doing it again. We do it Tuesdays, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern time. Yep. Uh, that would be... Is it now? 2200 UTC. Okay. I add... No, no, 20... Oh. I had a really isn't good... There a mi- isn't there a minus 7? I thought it was minus 7 or minus 8. 2100. It's minus 8. Oh, okay. Was minus yeah. seven, but uh, now we've reverted to uh, daylight, not in daylight time, regular Whatever time. Whatever it is. On summertime. Standard. Standard time. So it's now 2100 UTC. I, you know, I, I, have know a, har- I have a method now because it's eight. It's, it, <laughs> I add eight. So 12 plus eight is 20. So I just add 20 to whatever time you start. So it's 2100 UTC. Nice. See? I thought about this. That works. <laughs> if you can't watch live because you can't figure out what time it is, don't worry. On-demand versions always available. Steve's got a great little tiny 16 kilobit version. Sounds like it came from 1928, but it's small. You can also get transcripts, which are even smaller. He has handwritten human-readable uh, transcripts at his site, GRC, grc.com. You also can find Spinrite, world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, uh, now for SSDs, you can also find all sorts of projects he's working on, and those are all you know pro bono, so free, free, free. So yeah, perfect paper passwords, password haystacks, score squirrel. You can find about vitamin D. You can find about uh, ketogenic diets. You could f- there's all sorts of stuff there. It's kind of like the Doctor Bronner's soap bottle of websites, except the type is bigger. You know Doctor Bronner's soap. I heard of it, yeah. Yeah, you should get some. It's nice. Peppermint. Very, very smelly. Uh, it smells good. Smelly good. Very good smelly. <laughs> <laughs> Thus, the fact that they're still in business. Uh, yeah, even there's actually a documentary on Netflix about Dr. Bronner because he passed away a while ago. Ah. Uh, but the kids. The soap lives on. The kids the are still. I think it's on. in your neck of the woods. You could go to the Dr. Bronner soap factory, which is basically a big tub. A little, little bit of lie. People staring at it, waiting for it to dry out. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, what else? Oh, we've got high-quality audio and video at our site, twit.tv slash SN, security now. Uh, and your and, own archive. Oh, yeah, we got every every show going back. We're yep. redesigning the website, and one of the things I know everybody wants is, you know, one button downloaded everything. It's for your show only. Nobody's asking about any other show, but for your show, everybody <laughs> wants all of them. So, yeah, that's a big, that's a big you know, check mark for the website the new website oh um, oh yeah Ooh, hey i nice. listen you think i'm not listening Very but nice. i'm listening i'm knitting i'm making I get socks. It all the time yeah i get it all no, the time and, and and hiccuping uh we also have uh you know all those apps uh, great third-party developers who've made apps for every app platform including roku and so you can look for the twit app on your favorite platform you'll probably find it um, Windows Phone, iOS, Android, Roku, that kind of stuff, Samsung TVs. 
And uh, and then uh, there's iTunes and all the other places you might subscribe to a podcast. We're there, too. Because, you know, with a show that's been around for 10 years, there really is. I mean, it's like we win because everybody else gave up. Yep. <laughs> a long time ago. Bay and Dr. Bronner. We're like V'ger. Yeah. We just keep going. <laughs> keep going and going and going. All right. Just, okay. You should read, by the way, a little plug. I'm uh, just, I'm in the middle of it right now, but it's good. Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Oh, okay. Oh, I've a, heard you mention it. It's a novel, and it's about uh, privacy. And we won't know that immediately because at first it just seems like unrelated stories about people, but it's all knits hmm. together about halfway through. And it yeah. ends up being, it's sci-fi. It ends up being a, a massive global conspiracy to in, invade our privacy, not by government, but by private industry. No, they wouldn't do they that. They would never. No it's monetization. Re- it's really, it's really good. It's, a good, it's funny <laughs> and it's fun, and, and I think you'll like it. It's a, oh, neat. it's a cautionary tale. Yeah. WTF? Whiskey Tango Fox. <laughs> oh, now it comes home. Yeah. Now you know. What I, I get it. Now you know. The up- yeah. I'm a little slow. <laughs> it makes it easy to remember. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Steve. We'll see you uh, next. Actually, stick around. Did you get the uh, Voyage, the Kindle Voyage? Oh, no, it's pre-ordered. Jenny and I get ours on the 17th um, because I just didn't know about it in time, but I've heard you guys talking about it. Uh, My review's um, coming up and before you buy next. Oh, good. I will absolutely switch over to live feed and watch because um, I guess uh, from what I understand, the type is so crisp, it just completely changes the experience. And not having the screen, well, I don't mean mean to eclipse your... (laughs) <laughs> oh no nice. no no! It's good. No no, you can you can you can look. And it's uh, you see the page turn is so much better now than it was. Oh, yeah. nice. And, and uh, I, I love the squeezing on the margins. Yeah. that I, I like that better natural. than having to touch the screen. This is yep. so natural, isn't it? Oh, yeah, nice. Well, I'm going to give it a definite. Uh, you know, it's expensive. Is the only negative. It's two hundred bucks. Yeah, but uh, my, my mine and Jenny's is on the way. Yeah. I, I ordered them the moment I found out about it, and I guess I must just be, you know, they must be backlogged. Yeah. I'm sure they are. Wow. Um, nice. Nicely, they did a nice job with this. And I got the, the Amazon weirdo case. I don't, the origami, I don't understand it. <laughs> it's too complicated for me. It does something here, I'm sure. Oh, that you're able to, like, create a stand. Yeah, it makes it. a stand. Yeah. It's weird. Huh? Anyway, thank you, Steve Arino. Okay, buddy. Talk to you next week. We'll see you next time. Bye. Security.